the um, the story, the origin of this of this sutta, uh, in short, comes from an, a large group of monks who went to a beautiful forest to practice for the rains retreat. They were going to be living there for about four months, and unbeknownst to them, the forest was inhabited by tree spirits. And the tree spirits were not so happy that these monks had taken uh, taken up residence in their underneath their trees, and began to uh, um, inflict uh, uh, difficulty on them to disturb them to hopefully move them along. And so it's said that they they brought in um, or they induced uh, really difficult, uh, scary images in the monk's mind. They produced sounds through the forest that scared them and also produced really foul smells. (laughs) And this was enough to uh, freak out the monks and they they decided they had to leave and go to the Buddha to find, to ask him what to do next. And the Buddha tells them, you have to go back. And what I talked about last week was how, how whether this is a literal story uh, or there's something very uh, metaphorical about it, that the places that are, the places that scare us the most or the parts of ourselves that are really difficult to stay with, with our, with our attention, with our mindfulness, uh, the parts of our lives that are really uncomfortable or sad or disturbing. In this practice where we're asked to stay with, to be with even the difficult, especially the difficult, you know, how do we actually continue to do that? And so the Buddha saying, no, you have to go back, in a way could be said as a message to us that we do, we keep having to come back to these places of difficulty because that is where the practice is too. And so before they left, he taught the monks this uh, sutta, which um, is actually quite deep. We practiced the metta practice or a version of the metta practice this evening um, but I think this gives light to the depth of what this practice is really about. So we're going to chant this together, and we'll chant it slowly so we can keep up uh, and all do it together. This is not about having a good singing voice. <laughs> you'll notice, actually, there's, it's pretty much one tone, and then you'll see as you're looking at this, and I do apologize, the, some, this might be hard to see, uh, but below some of the letters, or above some of the letters, there's a triangle. And when you see a triangle, that's when our tone goes down or up, depending on where the triangle is pointing. Do you see that? And then underneath some of them, uh, some of the words, there's a line. And that line is just to say to extend that particular word out. Um, you'll get the hang of it pretty quickly as I go along. Okay. One of the ways that we can recite this is either having our hands up towards our heart 
the way I see this is really um, what this is about. And some of you may be wondering, what the heck is all the bowing and the the hands and all the stuff? Um, One way to interpret it is is really... um, in, it could be in reverence. It can also just be in uh, a gesture of openness, a gesture of availability for the mind and heart to accept the teachings. Um, and so that's, that's one way of seeing this. Or even in friendliness uh, and in harmony with each other when we bow to each other, um, so that's one way of seeing this. If this, is, if this doesn't resonate for you, t- putting a hand on your heart, uh, same thing. So you can do either or none. <laughs> if you want to just have your hands down, that's okay. I do put my hands up here. So Okay, so I'm going to read this first line, and then we'll all start together. Now let us chant the Buddha's words on loving kindness. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. Humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, Those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart Should one cherish all living beings, 
radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Okay. So I'm going to be coming back to this, so keep it out in front of you for now. I'll be using it as a reference as we explore this practice of metta and what this practice really means. I found a really interesting commentary by Acharya Buddha Rakita um, on this particular sutta. And I just want to read his introduction to this commentary. I think it gives a really nice sense and definition of what metta actually is. Because this word metta, there's not one word that's agreed upon or even one word that really encapsulates what metta is. And so he has a really nice way of describing it. He says, the Pali word metta is a multi-significant term meaning loving kindness, friendliness, goodwill, benevolence, fellowship, amity, concord, uh, inoffensiveness, and nonviolence. So that's a lot for one, this one very simple word, metta. There's a lot in this word. The Pali commentaries uh, define metta as a strong wish for the welfare and happiness of others. And so we did that in our practice this evening, wishing, wishing in all directions, including ourselves happiness uh, for others. He goes on, uh, through metta, one refuses to be offensive and renounces bitterness, resentment, animosity of every kind, developing instead a mind of friendliness, accommodativeness, I'm going to come back to that word in a moment to unpack it, and benevolence, which uh, seeks the well-being and happiness for others. So this accommodativeness, uh, what he's saying is not, we, as Buddhists, sometimes it gets confusing as if, you know, we're just so at peace with things that we become kind of like a doormat. <laughs> that's not what he's saying, and that's not what it's about. It's not about just, you know, oh, whatever, everything's okay, and, uh, I, you know, May we all be peaceful and, and I'll be peaceful and so I won't you know, stand up for myself or I won't take action when action is needed. That's not what this is about. Really what he's saying is that we can, through this practice of metta and the understanding of metta, 
we can live in harmony, in harmony with ourselves, with others. So this accommodativeness, living in harmony with all beings. True metta is devoid of self-interest. We're going to come back to that, I'm hoping, by the end of the talk, that this really is a selfless practice, and it also allows us to better understand what selfless means. Let's see. Uh, Devoid of self-interest. It evokes within a warm-hearted feeling of friendship, sympathy, and love, which grows boundless with practice and overcomes all social, religious, racial, political, and economic barriers. Metta is indeed a universal, unselfish, and all-embracing love. We're going to be reflecting on the implications of that this evening. What does that mean? The possibility for unboundless or all-embracing love, a boundless love, one that excludes nobody. Can we actually do that is the question. And I'm not here to answer that for you. That's really a personal exploration that in this practice we all must do at some point if we haven't already. Is this a possibility? Is it possible to fully open the heart in this way? And so the Buddha is saying, yes, it is. And... Uh, and the practice and cultivation of this practice of metta will allow that to unfold. That's how strong and powerful this practice truly is. So, uh, Acharya Buddha Rakita, uh, in his commentary, um, he breaks down this sutta into three parts. And so I'm going to go through these three parts with you so that we can get this full sense of what this practice is. And the first part of the sutta is really speaking to our, our actions, how we live out our metta, our verbal actions as well as our bodily actions, that we can refine the way that we are in our life, whether it's um, acting in ways that are wholesome, cultivating the wholesome in our actions and our speech, or restraining from uh, different ways that we know are harmful. So really we're talking about the cultivation of our sila, of our ability to be in harmony with, with life and with each other, and the restraining from um, uh, the activities that cause harm, uh, which are the precepts. So if you've ever sat a retreat, um, a mindfulness or um, uh, insight retreat, you've probably taken the precepts to restrain from causing harm, from taking what is not freely given to you, uh, restraining from speech that is harmful and untrue and unwise, um, restraining from uh, using your sexuality in a way that is harmful to others uh, as well as to yourself, not, not uh, harming each other through our sexuality. Um, that might seem might need a little unpacking. 
So I'll just say that it's not a, uh, about restraining your sexuality in the sense of denying your sexuality at all, but just noticing that those are really strong energies and that our actions from those energies can sometimes cause, cause harm. We know that. And then the last one, noticing how what we take into our body, intoxicants, how they lead towards uh, the acting out of these harmful actions and speech, and so restraining from that. So there's the cultivation and the, the restraining from, that this is actually a huge part of this practice, a huge part of the path towards awakening. And the Eightfold Path, uh, this, is, this is at the center of the path. Noticing that our actions and our words have an impact on our own mind, on our own body, as well as the minds and bodies of others. That we can't separate ourselves from others. That our actions and words have a ripple effect. That once they're done and they're out there in the world, we've, we've actually created the act or we've moved forward with the act, the action. That it has an effect. It has an effect in, bo- in all different directions. And so our actions and our speech coming from a place of metta or compassion, of generosity, of gratitude, of mindfulness, this creates a ripple effect which can then create more conditions, allowing for more of that uh, to arise in our experience. But when we act and speak from a place of hatred, of uh, greediness, of delusion, then we are then creating ripple effects that go out into uh, the world which cause more conditions for those conditions to arise. Does this make sense? So... You know, as Gandhi was saying, uh, that famous quote, you know, uh, be the peace that you wish to see in the world. This is what he's talking about. It's, of course we want the peace. We want the happiness, the safety, the ease, all of these things that we're wishing for. And we can wish them Uh, our entire lifetime. But if our actions and our speech aren't reflective of that wish, then it will be in vain. And this makes sense to us. It's logical, right? It makes sense. So this is the first part of the sutta. I'll read it to you. And if you want, you can follow along. Uh, Starting at line three, or line four, let them be able and upright. He's talking about, about us, about the practitioner. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Being simple uh, is what he's pointing to in that line. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. 
So this this meta practice um, can start with our actions in our speech. Actually, really bringing a lot of attention to how we are in the world, how we are in the world, and how that affects our mind and our heart. When we have been acting in a way that is not in harmony with others, um, and maybe it feels really justified, you know. Have you ever been, I'm sure, I know I've been in plenty of these interaction with someone where um, you say something or you do something that maybe an onlooker would say, wow, that was really rough. That was pretty insensitive or pretty mean. But there's this feeling of, yeah, but they deserved it. (laughs) So we, we, sometimes these actions and speech uh, that the wise would later reprove um, can feel really justified. Well, they deserved it. They were a jerk first, you know, so I'm just saying what I need to say. Or I'm angry, I should be allowed to express myself. Yes, we can express ourselves, but we need to know that there is a consequence that might be even deeper than uh, the immediate reaction of the other person. There's a deeper consequence within ourselves. What does it do to our inner, our inner peace? What does it do to our mind? Is our mind pervading with calm and safety, with well-being, contentment, happiness? Probably not. Probably not. And so it affects us deeply as well as the people that we're, we're with. And so when we can start to understand the method practice in this way, that it's it's... It's weaved into every aspect of our life. Already, this practice, um, we can see how powerful it truly is. This is from the Dalai Lama. All major religions, all major religious traditions carry basically the same message and that is love, compassion, and forgiveness. The important thing is that they should be part of our daily lives. So it's not enough. It's actually not enough just to come here and to feel at peace and to feel at ease. It's actually quite wonderful and noble to to come and practice here together. I'm not trying to lessen that. But it's also not enough, is it? We have to actually take this practice off the cushion. <laughs> we have to take it out into our lives to make the difference that we're, we're here for. We're here to, for something, whether it's more happiness, more calm, more mental ease. Or maybe you're here because you really want to be free. You want to awaken the heart and mind in the way that this practice says that it can lead towards. So either way, it's not enough just to be doing this here. It has to go with you as you walk out the door. It's not about being a perfect person. I'm not saying that. So if already you're thinking, well, (laughs) you know, give me a break. (laughs) I'm only human. Or, Or maybe it's, you know, I can never live up to this. It's not about being a perfect person. But it is about noticing when we mess up. 
the Buddha actually has a beautiful discourse that he, uh, he teaches his son, Rahula, uh, that it's important not only to notice when we are acting in a way that's not skillful during the act, but you know, we can notice it before. We can also notice it after in reflection. Wow, I really just blew it. That doesn't feel so good. I need to apologize or I need to, you know, be aware of this next time. Because, again, we just, we keep repeating these habits, don't we? Have you ever interacted with a person that really got to you? They just knew all your buttons and they were just a really difficult person and they were in your life for a little while and then somehow conditions are that they're not there anymore. Maybe you've changed jobs uh, maybe they moved away. Maybe you don't have the same set of friends anymore. And so you think, oh, good, I'm so glad I don't have to interact with that person anymore. And then, you know, a year later or a month later or a day later, you meet that same type of person <laughs> and you just find yourself wrapped up in that same kind of relationship that you didn't deal with the first time. We just keep repeating these experiences, really, until we wake up, until we realize that our, one, that our actions and our speech make a difference, how we relate to the difficulty, whether it's a person or it's a situation or it's something just internal within ourselves, how we relate to it is where the practice is. It's where the awakening, the freedom, the ease, the happiness we're so wanting is. So this first part in itself, you can see the circular motion of this. Um, I'm, I'm a very visual person, so I see it as a, this circular motion. I don't know if you see it, but I'll paint a picture. I'll try to. That, so, we, so we engage our actions and our speech. We bring more wisdom to it. We bring the metta to this part of our life. And that supports our practice when we come here and we sit or maybe you're sitting at home the ripple effects of one affects the other and so you might notice that if you're living a life in accordance with sila or harmony that your practice begins to uh, strengthen your mindfulness can strengthen. Your concentration can strengthen. Your metta strengthens. So one supports the other. And as you strengthen and practice uh, and cultivate metta or cultivate mindfulness, whatever your practice is, uh, you'll notice that it supports your actions and your speech. You're quicker to catch when you are... Uh, not in alignment with your actions and speech. You're more present to it. It feels weird. It starts to actually feel weird to behave in ways that might have been just the way you've always done it, old habits, right? But suddenly that habit doesn't fit anymore. It's kind of like a sweater that went through the dryer and shrank a bit, and now it's you're kind of doing this 
all day long. It just doesn't feel right. So our actions and speech support the practice. The practice supports our actions. It's all, the whole circle is our practice. The internal practice, the external practice. So the internal practice, the development of metta in our meditation. I gave you one flavor of it tonight. Last week I gave you a different sense of it. Uh, There's so many different ways to cultivate metta. This friendliness, this this, um, kindness to all beings. It can be developed as a concentration practice. Actually, metta, one of of its um, benefits is a collected mind. It puts our mind at ease. It brings joy and energy into our practice and allows the mind to collect. It allows it to focus, sustain attention. It's a very powerful concentration practice, actually. Did anyone have a sense of that while we were practicing earlier this evening, the mind collecting? A few of you, yeah. So some of you got a flavor of that. When the mind is concentrated in this way, when we're practicing metta, and we start to see the the mind collect, and it becomes more clear, what we're seeing becomes more clear, it also functions as a protection it can start to protect us from the hindrances or the things, the, the mind, mental states that um, cloud the mind from seeing things as they truly are. Um, so uh, aversion, not wanting. Greed, wanting. I wish this moment was, if I just had this one, you know, if I just had my blanket like this or if I just had one more cushion then I'd awaken, (laughs) you know, and then the aversion is, you know, oh, I, you know, back pain. I just, I hate it. I just hate it. I'm just going to sit here and hate it and wish it would go away. If maybe if I wish hard enough, it'll go away. Aversion. That might be an extreme version, but maybe that relates for some of you. Um, uh, Anxiety or restlessness, worry. Maybe you felt some of this as you were sitting here. Oh, is she going to ring the bell? (laughs) Is it over yet? (laughs) Just not able to really settle. The mind often with this restlessness is just going, 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 going. And there's this feeling of um, uncollected energy. It's just kind of all over the place. Sloth and torpor. Uh, It's sleepiness, but it's also a sleepiness that allows us to avoid being present. Some dullness, sometimes boredom. Uh, It's going to have a flavor of being bored. This just nothing's happening. I'll just space out until the end, or I'll plan my next vacation or my grocery list. (laughs) Just kind of, just not really motivated to meet the moment. Sounding, sounding familiar. Doubt. No, doubt is really quite tricky. Uh, this, this uncertainty with, with what's happening. 
whether it's in the practice, I don't think I can do this. Am I doing it right? This doesn't seem right. Shouldn't I be more peaceful by now? (laughs) Or I've been practicing this for years. I just feel like I'm getting nowhere. These are the, the words of doubt. Or maybe even in our life when we encounter doubt. And it's like, which, what's the right choice? Which direction should I go in? I don't know. I want to do the right thing. I don't know what to do. And we end up being quite paralyzed and unable to make any decision, or at least any decision well. These are just flavors of the hindrances. Let's see, did I miss any? I don't think so. That was all of them. Yeah, so... So this concentrated state with metta, it protects us from these mental states. It actually works as a protection. I'll tell you a story. Years ago, uh, I believe it's been 10 years now, I spent quite a bit of time uh, in Thailand practicing. And actually, my first retreats were were in Thailand. I learned meditation here in the U.S., but... um, uh, did my first retreats there. And I my first res- retreat was at a monastery down in the southern region of Thailand called Swam Mok. And this is, those of you who know uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a Thai forest, who was a Thai forest monk, very revered uh, monk in Thailand, as well as by the Western teachers who sat with him, have then since come back uh, and really gave rise to this, uh, the insight uh, meditation um, lineage in which you're uh, a part of now. So this this monastery uh, had a small quasi-retreat center built on the land uh, for Westerners to come and practice. And so that was where I did my first retreat. I've told this before, so this might be familiar to some of you. Um, the The practice is such there that you're really getting a monastic experience in many ways. Uh, and that's part of where, why you're there, is to, to have that experience. And so the men and women are separated, and you are staying in, in separate barracks. And the barrack... I, I don't know that they called them barracks. I think of them as barracks because they were these cinder block... Um, buildings, and you had this very small room uh, with a cement slab that was just a little bit off the ground, and that was your bed. And they gave you this little, very thin grass mat that you put on top of that, Um, and then a blanket, and a mosquito netting, and a wood pillow (laughs) to... (laughs) So that you don't sleep long hours. <laughs> it's very effective. <laughs> and um, I, was, I, I was in the mind state that I, I was really ready for this. This didn't deter me at all. Um, I, uh, I often love telling the first night I sat up with candlelight sewing with dental, my dental floss, sewing the holes in my mosquito net (laughs) and thinking, this is great. (laughs) So just to give you a sense of where, where I was at, I was really into this. I was ready for it. 
I don't know how I would do now, to be honest, but then I was, I was into it. But as the days went on, the conditions were, were really rough. I was there at the hottest time of the season, which is really hot. I didn't realize it, but that's why the plane ticket was much cheaper than later on in the year. <laughs> I had no clue. So uh, it, was, it was incredibly hot, incredibly humid. Uh, the bugs were all on steroids. They were huge. They would bite. They, there was a lot of poisonous bugs and snakes and a lot of, a lot of that around. Um, I actually was bit by what I think was some kind of flying ant and had this large um, uh, uh, blister form on my hand that just looked awful. It actually didn't hurt, but it just was enough for my mind to be agitated and concerned. And um, the food uh, was very minimal. You get two meals a day, uh, one at breakfast, one uh, around before noon. And then there's no food after noon. And this is a really, this is a common practice in this tradition. Um, And so between the heat and the bugs and um, not a lot of food. Um, there was a lot of room for dukkha, a lot of um, uncomfortable unsatisfactoriness, as you can imagine. A lot of room for that. Uh, in fact, people, the Westerners, we were, they were dropping like flies. Every day there was one or two less people than had started. And um, uh, so, yeah, so there's the picture of what this was like. Every day there were different monks and nuns that would come uh, from their from wherever they were practicing and teach us something. And there was a monk who would come in the morning and teach us chanting and teach us a little bit of uh, the Pali language. There was another monk that would come down. He was uh, British and had this umbrella. And you'd watch him come down the hillside. Uh, I just have such a fond memory of that and. He'd sit and um, talk about deep, deep concentration states, which I'm just trying to sit there, <laughs> let alone get concentrated. So I thought, okay, well, that's out. Um, and other monks teaching us uh, uh, vipassana, metta, uh, mindfulness practice. Um, and then there was this nun who came every day around uh, sometime in the afternoon. And she taught us metta. And... I realized quickly that's something I can do in all of these conditions. That's something that felt doable. And so I just started doing the metta practice. And that was it. I didn't follow. I listened, but I didn't actually practice the other practices. It just was too much for my mind, which was just trying to cope with um, the conditions that I was in. Um, having, I, you know, I live, we, most of, we live, privileged lives uh, here. Um, and uh, I think that's fair to say. And so to be, to be there was, was really, I was coming up against my privilege. And uh, so there I was doing metta, metta for myself, metta for the people in my life, metta for all beings. And I watched my mind get concentrated and still. I watched my body relax finally, even with all the difficult conditions. And I watched 
as the days went on, a sustained state of just being in this field of radiating metta. This doesn't always happen, by the way. This was kind of a, a unique experience, perhaps, or, or one that you don't need to try and, and, and get to. Um, but it was just what happened. The conditions were right. And in this state, there weren't, the hindrances just weren't there. The conditions were the same. Nothing changed in the conditions. They may have even gotten more difficult, but my mind wasn't moved by them. There was something so settling uh, within the practice of metta and within the concentration that I was in that uh, it didn't really... It wasn't that it didn't matter, but it just didn't move the mind towards any of the hindrances. It didn't move it to aversion. Oh, I really can't stand this. Or to wanting. I wish we could just have dessert. <laughs> a little bit of chocolate would go a long way right now. You know, it didn't, it didn't go into restlessness. God, I think he fell asleep. Just ring the bell. It, it, doubt. All... It wasn't there. And this was the practice, the practice of, of metta, how powerful this practice really is or it can be. Now, I will share that, you know, for a reality check, I've been on many retreats since, and they haven't all been like that. <laughs> There's been plenty to work with. So, um, but, but, there's, uh, when I talk about this practice and its power, this is what I'm referencing back to, is just my own experience with it. Um, so metta can be a protection, a, a, a practice that protects us from the hindrances. It can also be cultivated systematically to include all beings everywhere. So oftentimes uh, this practice is done where we're actually thinking, uh, bringing up categories of people. So it starts with self, actually. Um, at the time of the Buddha, I, I suppose it was thought that self was the easiest category. I've actually been told that. I haven't read this, so I don't know where this is coming from, but that we started, they started with self because that was the easiest category. That's not so true anymore, is it? Culturally, this is sometimes our most difficult category, is metta, kindness towards ourself. Um, so it's just interesting how, how it's changed a little bit, and yet still this is where we bring our practice. We, we bring practice to self, to our benefactor, to a friend, to a neutral person, someone you see you know, on a regular basis, but you don't really know them and you don't have any particular... Uh, feeling about them, um, but there's someone in your consciousness wishing metta to that being as well. To the difficult person, actually spending time wishing just to the difficult people, your metta, very hard, can be incredibly difficult. Um, but this is, this is part of this practice of opening, including all beings. And then this, that's where it leads, is to all beings. And then there's the radiating practice in which we just did this evening. So many different ways to cultivate this this practice. And then finally, there's 
the, the third category that I talked about, which is the philosophy of metta. This is from the Dalai Lama, just to set up uh, what this is, what the philosophy may be. He says that love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. This is necessary. This isn't frivolous. frivolous. (laughs) This isn't, you know, a self-help guide to a better day. (laughs) This is... This is necessary. This is necessary. It's not indulgent. It's necessary. The last part of the sutta says, one should sustain this recollection that this is said to be the sublime abiding. The sublime abiding. When we are present, when we are protected from the hindrances when we're freed from greed, hatred, and delusion, when we are, maybe in its most simplest terms, when we're just here, when we're just being, nothing extra, nothing added. This state state that doesn't include a lot of self. We spend a lot of time with self. Everything is about us. (laughs) Whether we like someone, don't like them. Whether we're worthy of our own metta or not worthy of our own metta. Whether someone else is worthy of our metta or not worthy of our metta. It's all about us, these kinds of thoughts and beliefs. The sublime abiding is free from this. By not holding to fixed views, The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, not needing, not needing anything from this metta, from this practice. Free from that. Can you imagine? What is this implying? Is that even possible? And then going on to say, is not born again into this world. Now, there is some... Uh, the cosmology implications here of uh, birth and rebirth. Um, and we won't get into that right now, but it is pointing to this, that um, this ripple effect goes on beyond our understanding uh, through the, the deeper understanding of karma, which is... Uh, I guess a well-known word, but not well understood. (laughs) It also, I believe, is pointing to uh, the birth of the selfing, the birth of our ignorance, of us not understanding that happens or can happen in every moment or any moment. That which is creating these cycles of unsatisfactoriness of non-harmony with how things are. That when we are, can truly understand the depth of this practice, that that rebirthing of, of selfing, rebirthing of uh, the difficulty 
it no longer it no longer applies it's no longer even available so this is pointing to something quite extraordinary quite extraordinary and we don't have to understand it right now right now we can just pose it as a possibility or even a question is that really possible what is this implying what is this implying this is the metta practice though the depth the breadth of the metta practice it's included in our actions and in our speech it is something we cultivate here on the cushion and it can bring us to freedom to full awakening full understanding true happiness uh, not all this selfing not all this creating of drama and difficulty that we're in the habit of doing those are all just different ways of saying it quite extraordinary so we have only a few minutes before the end uh, i think it would be nice to see if there's any questions i often ask for questions and comments but since we have so little time um i wasn't expecting to keep going that long <laughs> but i did so if there's any questions that are that are up even if it's not a well-formed question i think sometimes we feel like it needs to be this really well-formed great question it doesn't need to um but if there's something that seems to be coming up or there's a feeling of not understanding or wanting clarity uh we can take a a few of those a couple of those thank you dear it's great I'm John. <coughs> I'm John. Hello. Yeah. Um, the question was, uh, you know, I, loving kindness, medi- yeah, loving kindness meditation, and not being a doormat. Yeah. Loving not, kindness. Loving meditation. kindness meditation, and, and having that open heart, without but being the, a without being a doormat, and that's what I'm struggling with. So yeah. I've been practicing loving kindness for about three or four months. Yeah. And it does open you, and I notice, you know, as I'm doing it, I'm even crying at the end of it. But Mm -hmm. happiness, which is weird, why am I crying if I'm happy? But that's what's happening. It's the opening of the heart. It touches us. it's really a a unique thing for me. Mm. But the other part, too, is um, feeling like I'll just bend with the wind, Mm -hmm. let the universe take me wherever direction it takes me and not resist. Yeah. But I'm winding being twisted quite a bit by that. Yeah, yeah. So how... Meta and not being a doormat is um, is an area in this practice, the development of practice that we all have to take a look at. And in in a simple way, I'm going to address your question, but there's actually a lot of depth to this question, so I just want to name that. Um, and that is that with meta, we have to bring in wisdom as well. The two go together. Actually, last week, this is what I was addressing, was that the metta practice and the mindfulness practice or compassion practice and wisdom practice, they, they go together. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, there's the, 
uh, analogy of the bird and that each wing of the bird um, is required for flight. And one wing is compassion and one wing is wisdom. And we need both. And so it's wisdom that allows us to see that when uh, metta or compassion, you know, the heart is just so open when it's um, turning into, you know, a desire, actually. Metta can sometimes turn into desire and wanting, um, either wanting love and friendliness from another or wanting our friendliness and love to be received. Um, so it can, it can sometimes fall into that. And so just to notice with wisdom when it shifts, even when it's such a sh- it can be such a sh- subtle shift, but noticing that slight shift, you know, with compassion, when it's starting to turn into overwhelm, just overwhelm, there's just so much going on in this world that to fully open to all of the, the suffering and the, the discomfort and all the dukkha with our uh, compassion can be really overwhelming. And so we bring in uh, the wisdom to see when it shifts into overwhelm because once it's overwhelm, it's not it's actually not compassion anymore. It's something else. Or the other near, they call it the near enemies, the other near enemy of compassion, uh, pity. When it turns into kind of, oh, you know, almost you poor thing, a, a, dis, a slight disconnect as if um, uh, the suffering of another could never be our suffering as if there was a separation, a better than, a less than, doing well, not doing well, uh, that separation. Just the wisdom is needed to see that, that shift, because right in that slight shift, it's no longer compassion. So, so the wisdom is essential as you are opening and closing. You'll see that it's so natural. We open And sometimes we're just a little too open. We need to have a little more protection. And so you'll see that kind of experience as you're practicing this. That's just fine. It doesn't mean, you know, that it's not working or it's not going well if you feel the the closing. It's just our, our way of protecting ourselves and getting used to the openness until we can hold the openness with a lot of wisdom. Um, a lot of balance, a lot of equanimity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I I see your hand. We're we're actually at time, but if you want, you can come up afterwards, and anyone can come up afterwards. I'll stay a little bit late uh, later to answer any questions. Sorry about that. I like to leave time for questions, but it just didn't happen. What I would like us to do, though, is dedicate the merit. Uh, So dedicating the merit, a time for us to reflect on uh, the goodness of being here together, that this this is um, worthwhile (laughs) to spend time together cultivating our practice and understanding and our metta in this way. Um, It's a wholesome activity, and from that we can... um, uh, actually dedicate the wholesomeness to to all beings. And we can also, I think, just to really connect with this idea that this practice is not just for us, that we are doing this for the people we care about, 
the people who are difficult, um, the people in our community, the people who are seen by us, even the people who are not seen by us. This practice really truly is for all beings. Let's just take a moment, and if there is someone in particular you'd like to dedicate your practice to tonight, you can just whisper or say their name out loud, bring them into the space with us. And I'll be quiet for just a minute to to allow for that. You can also just say them in your mind if you don't feel comfortable saying them out loud. Thank you. So for those named... I'm going to mention Marshall Rosenberg, who um, was mentioned earlier during the announcements. So those names and and those unnamed out loud, but perhaps held in our hearts and mind. And for all beings everywhere, may the practice and time and cultivation here this evening be for all. May all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings be happy and content. May all beings be healthy in their mind and in their body. May all beings find ease and freedom in this life. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.